Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1206, with guest Mark Seaman. Recorded Thursday, October 1st, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We've got a great show. Mark Seaman is here. We'll be talking about uh, property-based testing using F-sharp. But first, hey, uh, Richard, a couple of people have had questions about the new website. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, and most everybody likes it, but a couple of things are hard to find. If you, uh, particularly in sharing, if you find a show you want to share, there is a little button or link or whatever right on the show page that says copy link address. And you pick that up and, and there you go. Right. So it, it may be not as discoverable as some people thought, but it is there. So, And we still have the tweet button, right? Like there's still the, if you want to tweet a show out, stuff like that, on a given show, those things are there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you can still do all of that. But uh, yeah, the, knowing how to get a, a a show link, because now it's, it's spa. They spot it. We've, yeah, spa- we, we've been spawed. We've been spawed. Exactly. <laughs> But that, that part still works. The the one piece that doesn't work anymore that makes me sad, and we're trying to figure out a better way for that, is getting lists of the Geek Out shows. Well, you can uh, when you when you go to tags. Yeah, you have to use the page to do it. I can't send you a link to just a list of the Geek Out shows. That's right. You'd have to use an RSS feed, correct? Yeah. The RSS feed works awesome. I love the new RSS feed. And you can... You can um, sort what's on the page by tag, but yes, you're yeah. right. You have to do it on you the You know site. the other thing that works? The search. Yep, search works. So I've been in the reflex of searching by hand on the page for the longest time because that's where I pull comments and things from. Yeah. And I've just figured out, you know what's fast? Use the search. The search is really fast. Turns and out it searches it, the title. It searches the abstract. It, it's really good. I looked at all the, the geek out shows. Guess how many we have have done? 50 something? Yeah, 51. Wow. It's crazy. It's, uh, yeah. And speaking of the geek out shows, we're going to see The Martian this Friday when it opens. Yep. And we'll be doing a we'll be talking about it the day after, I'm sure. Well, yeah, the show come out a little couple weeks later, but uh, I have, you know, there's been so much going on around Mars, both for real and otherwise. And I think it's partially to do with this movie. It seems like time to circle back on all that. Yep. All right, well, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know Framework. I awesome. got a good one for you today. <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? So this was a tweet from Klee UT. That's K L E E U T in NSW, which is New South Wales, mm-hmm. and it's Symbolhound. Symbolhound.com. 
Search better, code better. So Symbolhound is a search engine that doesn't ignore special characters. This means you can actually search for symbols like ampersand, percent, and pi. Right. Pi. I don't know why you'd search for pi, I suppose, if you're a mathematician, sure. Are you hungry? Are you hungry? We hope Symbolhound will help programmers find information about their chosen languages and frameworks more easily. For example, you know, the things that you find in languages like operators and stuff and just C sharp in general. Yeah. Searching on C sharp is a painful thing in traditional search engines. Yep. Yeah. It just doesn't work all that well. So there you go. Symbol hound. That's cool, man. Nice find. Yep. And thanks to Klee, UT, whatever your name is. But that was a good one. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1170, the one we did with Mr. Seaman, where we talked about less is more in languages, Curry getting brief in languages, which spawned a ton of conversation yeah. in the comment section. And, uh, and kudos to Mark for diving right in. It's lots of people talking away there. Uh, one comment popped out to me, especially that was Lee Bryant's comment. And I don't know if that's the Lee Bryant we know. I don't know. Yeah. From, uh, Kansas City Code Camp, or if it's another Lee Bryant, either way, he's getting a mug because Lee says, I have been a .NET developer for 13 years, but I enjoy learning new languages. And 13 years is pretty much all of .NET, so yeah, all of it. Uh, it seems like we're in a major shift in how we build software due to the direction that hardware is taking, aka more cores, which is also a shift that's been going on for 15 years, really. I've been recently learning Elixir after being exposed to it on the show. It's an amazing language, and it's shocking how terse yet readable it is, Mm -hmm. which I think speaks volumes about this show that we did uh, uh, with Mark talking about simplifying language. Functional pattern matching plus a guard clause makes it very rare to have or see an if statement in your code, which is exactly what we talked about, right? What happens? How would you write code if you didn't use if? After studying Elixir, I'm hoping that more functional features make its way into C-sharp so that I can use them on a daily basis. And I would argue functional programming C-sharp is absolutely possible. Functional is a style as much as it is a language. So you could do it either way. Anyway, I I appreciate that Lee has been inspired by a show we've done to not only explore a new language, but to start thinking in new ways. Because I think that makes a better programmer. So, Lee, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social medias because we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we'll send you a mug if we read it on the show. Absolutely. So let's introduce again Mark Seaman. Mark helps programmers make code easier to maintain. He's a Danish freelance programmer, author, conference speaker, and MVP. He's created courses for Pluralsight written a book and numerous technical articles, created open source software, and even written production software that works. We're not geeking out on software development. He's very proud of that. (laughs) I like that. It works. We're not geeking out on software development. He likes cooking and eating gourmet food. Notice the placement of the comma. It was cooking, comma, and eating gourmet food. (laughs) Another favorite pastime is reading books on various topics, both fiction and non his, uh, once his tennis elbow is healed, he hopes to be able to pick up his guitar again. Wow. I, I hope we change your bio after your tennis oh, elbow yeah. has healed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually got the tennis elbow from playing too much guitar. Can you believe that? Wow. <laughs> should we call so, guitar elbow then? I don't know. Yeah. It should probably be a guitar elbow. Yeah. 
unfortunately. So the, so the comment there about the, the cooking is that I do enjoy cooking, but I, I do not consider that being, you know, gourmet f- food that I cook myself. I but I you. do enjoy eating that. So, um, yeah, so that was a little tongue-in-cheek Baked potatoes, <laughs> toast, glass of milk. No, well, what, I, can what, do, <laughs> I can do stuff that's a little bit more advanced than that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's your, what do you like to do? I'm, ser- I'm serious here. What's your... Oh, well, I just like to, you know, put on, you know, a good, good steak or do a good sauce. So if you, if you've ever read the one book that I wrote, it, it pretty much starts talking about how to do sauce bernets. Um, oh, nice. so that's one of the things that I actually do enjoy doing from time to time. But, um, you know, just, uh, making all sorts of things that, that, you know, just work well together is, um, it's nice. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think are, are, are missing from American cuisine for the most part, aren't they? Sauces, sauces. Yeah, I mean sauces. Like it, the staples of of French cuisine is sauces, it's probably right? Probably a very know? French thing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 you know we have like cheese whiz in America. You know, I don't <laughs> even know what that is. <laughs> I'm, you know, You're I'm off. proud. I'm proud of you that you don't know what that is. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and when you talk about the sort of core sauces like Bernays and Holidays and things like that, I mean they're all about emulsifying eggs, which means mm. you can break them. And oh, yeah. that's a kind of cooking I think a lot of people really struggle with, that you have to look at your food as you're making it to decide how the sauce is actually going. Mm. Right, yeah. So that was the analogy that I originally used in the in the book, so not that we're going to talk about this today, but basically it's saying, well, there, there are things that you can do that, that you know, you can break them if you don't know what you're, what you're doing. But once you actually figure out how to do that, it very rarely actually goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just getting over that hurdle of not being afraid of doing it anymore. And then everything's going to be fine. So yeah, there's lots of things in life that works like that. So and I would argue you're a far there. better cook for breaking a Bernays and fixing it than you are for never doing it wrong in the first place. Welcome yeah. to the Cooking Geek Out show. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it applies really heavily to software. If every app you've ever written just worked, you just don't know the hard stuff of digging right. out from the hole yep. of going down the wrong path. Yeah, anyone can use a wizard, but uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the people who know how to fix broken software that really uh, impress me. So software wizards are like ready, ready-made meals? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a hungry man wizard. Maybe ready-made solutions are, are like ready-made wheel, uh, meals, yeah. Right. Property-based testing using F-sharp. Yeah. So yes. uh, it seems to me we may have talked about this offline so because I have a little bit of knowledge of it, but why don't you give us the, uh, the fundamental right. sure. pitch? Well, so first of all, it's um, – so what we need to, set to, to establish here is that we're in the realm of doing automated testing, just like with, when doing unit testing, for example. So we're trying to solve the same sort of problem that we're also trying to solve with unit testing, basically proving that the software still works, you know, compared to the last time you ran all your tests. Yeah. So, so that's still the purpose of doing property-based testing. So it's, so, it's, it's a sort of unit testing. Um, and also, also in order to get some potential misconceptions out of the way, when we talk about property here, we're not talking about real estate property or anything else you own. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also not talking about properties that C-sharp developers will typically tend to think about, you know, those, uh, the syntactic sugar for getter and setter methods. That's mm. not the sort of properties that we're actually talking about when we do property-based testing. The property that we're talking about here is a, a property in, in the sense that it's a quality or a trait or an attribute of a system, okay. if you will. Um, and the systems that we tend to talk about when we talk about property-based testing is uh, procedures or functions. Um, so, um, 
So that's basically the overview of it. And then what's different from unit testing is that instead of, you know, typically when you do unit testing, you you do what we call example-driven development, where you have lots of examples where you say, well, if the input is foo, the expected output is going to be 42. And if the input is bar, the expected output is going to be 1337, something like that. Um, but what we do instead with uh, property-based testing is that we have some sort of generator that generates a lot of random values as input. And then we try to establish some sort of relationship between the input and the output. And that, and that relationship is what we call call a property. Nice. Okay. Uh, Okay, that's, that, does that make sense so far? Yep. Yeah, I was oh. just thinking not all not all values are created equal. You know, there's not a lot of difference between 10 and 11, although in some cases it might be, but there's a big difference between 10 and, say, null. Right, yes. Well, it so, yes. sort of so, reminds me of, of like a, what do they call it, a, a white t- list testing or something that like PEX does, where well, it takes all of the values that could possibly go into an input and makes a um, test yeah. for all of them. It's there is a, r- a relationship there. I th- and, and I think it's white interesting that. You, yeah, I think it's interesting to, that you bring it up. But but PEX is white box testing because it's actually using the capability of .NET by analyzing the IL. And it, uh, and what PEX also does is that it, as far as I remember, it instruments the code that it's testing so that it knows whether uh, you know when it's actually have has full coverage mm. and it has some intelligence built in so that it can actually look at the IL instructions and see I can see that there's a branch here and it looks like there is a um, a boundary value around this point uh, so that's what it's actually trying to do so that's right. that's that's PEX although um, today so that's think, now IntelliTest in Studio 2015 sure. yes yeah. Yes, and uh, but property-based testing is much older than this, and the the approach to it is a little bit different. So I think the first thing that I also need to say about this is that there are all, there's also a type of testing using randomized input called fuzz testing, and um, and and we're not talking about fuzz testing here. So I just want to get that out of the way. Fuzz testing okay. is something you do um, where you just throw lots of garbage input at a system, basically to figure out whether it has you know security vulnerabilities like overflow vulnerabilities, or just see whether it can you know deal with the stress of getting lots of garbage input. Um, that's fuzz testing. That's not really what we're talking about here. We're try we're talking about generating randomized input values, but still input values that fall into the range of being somewhat meaningful, if that makes sense. Sure. <laughs> so I think, actually, if you look at the history of it, as far as I can tell, the um, the original purpose was to solve some of the same problems that PEX is trying to solve in the sense that it's trying to flush out the boundary cases of a system. So basically what you're saying is instead of of having that white box approach that PEX has, you just throw a lot of random data into a function and then you see what happens. So basically that's going to flush out if you have some sort of issues at your boundaries, at your boundary values, you probably discover that because then tests might actually break. Mm. Um, so okay. does that make sense so far? So far, yeah. All right, cool. Um, so, but what what turns out to be interesting with property based testing is then that um, the because we have this randomized input, we we can't really say what we expect the output to be like. So instead, we have some somehow to be able to express in the executable code itself the relationship that we have between the input and the output, and that forces us to express the um, that relationship in, in a term that is more abstract, if you will. And that doesn't really sound like a good idea, but somehow 
it can be very, very helpful because it actually helps you to break down the problem in the observable behavior that you, that you actually care about instead of trying to test the implementation details. So, so what's, what we have found out later is that, um, it seems to be very good at solving some of the same problems that behavior-driven development is solving, but in a very different way. Um, so one of the criticisms that have been raised against traditional unit testing, if you will, is that traditional unit testing often tends to test implementation details instead of actually testing the overall behavior of a system. Uh, and then what happens when you do that is if you, if you change the implementation details of a system, then you also break your tests and then you need to fix your tests. And there's a lot of maintenance overhead with that. Yeah. So Dan North, um, back in 2005, 2006, I think it was, introduced this thing called behavior-driven development where he talked about, well, we need to um, raise the level of abstraction by having this whole Gherkin language given when then. And that was his approach to trying to solve this problem of how do we actually test the the behavior that we care of, uh, that we care about, instead of just testing the implementation details. Right. Uh, but what I found is that, well, that can be very valuable. But I found that property-based testing gives me a completely different way of also achieving that goal, uh, because it forces me to to think about again the behavior or sub-behaviors of a system instead of thinking about implementation details. So that can be actually very valuable for that reason. And it seems so. It seems like we're looking at it from the outside only. And if the implementation changes, that should be to uh, well. If the implementation changes, it doesn't really matter. If they the end result is the same. That's what we're looking at. Is that right? Exactly. So we're, yeah. we're basically saying, well, maybe not for all input, but for a given subset of all valid input into this function, then we behave, then we expect that the relationship between that subset of input and that right. and the output should be in a certain way. It's not so, as granular. In other words, it doesn't have to be granular yeah. at least. Um, but one of the, so the hello world example of property based testing is testing a reverse uh, function. So imagine that you have a list of values. You, you know, it could be a list of numbers. It could also be a list of characters, like in, in a string, for example. And you want to reverse that list. Um, so, so the classical hello world example of doing property based testing for that is that you're saying, well, no matter what the list is, if you reverse the list and then you reverse it again, you will get this back the original list. Mm -hmm. That's a property. It doesn't fully describe the behavior of reversing a list, but it's a beginning of describing what could, how could you describe what a reverse list might actually look like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so you so you can go through a, a problem and you can try to decompose it into all sorts of, of various small things where you can say, well, the relationship between doing something and then doing something else will actually, for example, get you know um, produce the original result. That may be the case, or you may you know be able to say something else. Um, but it's just a, a way that it, that forces you to decompose a problem into smaller uh, behaviors, and then you can test the observable behavior, behavior of whatever it is that you're trying to do instead of of trying to 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 um, yeah to test the implementation details. So as you say, you can refactor your implementation, and you shouldn't be breaking any of those tests. And the idea is again that you may not have thought of all the cases that um, this method could be called in and with and data passed. Right. So you you yeah so so you need some sort of tool that can come up with all that is fs check that tool well in 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 f sharp or actually in .net fs check is that tool so um 
we've we've been talking about uh, being able to do this in F sharp so far. Actually, FS check can also be used from C sharp. There's some limits to what you can do with it in C sharp. It it makes some assumptions on the on the methods or the functions that you want to test. Mm. Um, but if you follow those assumptions or if you help it along a little uh, by yourself, you can actually also use uh, property-based testing from C-sharp. Uh, so I also suppose you can actually do it for, even from visualbasic.net if, mm -hmm. if, um, if you want to. I've, I haven't tried that, but I've tried it from C-sharp as well. And that actually turns out to be, you know, if you follow the convention, that is possible as well. Okay. So, um, so it's, it's actually pretty, um, pretty useful in that way. And um, and FS check is a is a port by the original invention of property based testing was back in 1999 that um, you know everything that that was invented it seems like in functional programming comes from Haskell so yeah. it was originally <laughs> you know, created in Haskell and then it was ported to a million other languages and one of the ports uh, is then FS check which is sort of inspired by by Quick Check. Mm. Mm -hmm. I read yeah Quick Check is the name of that one yeah. Yep. 1999 huh. Yeah, so I remember yeah, when um, Visual Studio first came out and .NET first came out, they were very proud of the fact that it supported Haskell. Uh, there was a Haskell that worked in Visual Studio .NET really? 1.0. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. I had but no idea where it is ended now. up following F-sharp from the very beginning before it was called F-sharp because of uh, that work to, to uh, use Studio as the dev environment rather than have to create your own all the time. And, uh, and I mean, what ultimately evolved into F sharp, it was Don Syme. We, I mean, I think we managed to get him on the show mm -hmm. way before any of this really took off. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so I think the reason why he actually started out with this whole project was just basically the same reason why Haskell was originally created. It's just because, you know, they, you have, you have all those computer scientists, researchers, and they want to experiment with all sorts of different things. Uh, but then you have this problem that every time you want to do real experimentation with an idea about a programming language, you actually have to have an IDE or some a sort of editor and you have to create a compiler and so on. Uh, so as far as I understand it from Don Syme, one of the things he found interesting uh, by doing F-sharp originally was that, you know, by putting it on top of .NET, he had, you know, a complete environment and complete ecosystem that he could, you know, help to bootstrap the um, the language that he was interested in. And, I, and I, I'm not really sure he actually originally intended it to be such, um, you know, a um, mainstream useful language that it's turning out to be at the it moment. It sure seems that way. That he, he kind of got blindsided by his success. I love that he stayed involved, even though it's become a oh, production yeah. product. Oh yeah, he's still he's still submitting lots of of things uh, to that to that um, to the to the language and and things around that. And he's even doing pull requests, and it's so beautiful to see. So you I follow him on, on Twitter. So you see, can someone please you know review this pull request that I've created for F Sharp? And then you're the goddamn you know creator of the language. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna criticize your code, yeah. dude? <laughs> you but made I, it. Yeah, but I just think you know he just realizes that even though he actually invented the language. He's, he still realizes that you know getting a second pair of eyes on on whatever you did or is always the nicest idea. guy. But I also yeah. appreciate, and he said this way early on that being able to run inside a studio meant that he got a whole other group of developers, not just language geeks, but yes. other folks that were thinking about it differently. And I think it made it dramatically better. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and, and it's funny always to talk to him uh, because uh, you know my approach to F sharp is very much 
geared towards doing and creating things that are, you know, basic stuff like, you know, things that talk to databases and talk to other web services and, dis, you know, just create things that you can display on a screen and so on. And, and sometimes I can feel that he's very interested in hearing about that because that's very far removed from his, you know, his original environment and his original vision for, for F sharp. So he, I think he, he finds it interesting and, you know, very compelling that, it could be done for something that he never really envisioned by himself. Well, this sort of brings me around to the next question, which is the same way that we look at functional and go, why is this a better way to write code in general? What is it about property-based testing that is inherently functional? Like, why do we include this aspect? Well, so one of the things that are a little bit difficult is that um, that in order to create values, so basically what FSCheck does is that it looks at you just ask it to create, for example, an integer. That's easy enough. It'll just, you know, create some integers. But you can also ask, you know, you can define your own type. So let's say you have a customer type that has, you know, a first name and a last name and an address and so on, uh, things like that. And you can also ask um, if it's checked to generate values of your own custom types, like, you know, your person type or customer type or whatever it is. And um, what you wanted to be able to do then is is not actually crashing just while creating a value. So this is also possible to do in C sharp, but sometimes when you you know when you define objects or classes in C sharp or other object oriented languages, you have to be very explicit to make sure that it's actually properly encapsulated so that you for example can you know that you can call the constructor and you can actually pass in all the values through the constructor for example so that it's properly initialized that you you know that it doesn't have lots of null values uh, sitting all over the place and um, and it's just much easier to do in a functional language because things are in general expressed in a way that if you are able to ever create a value of a particular type, then you know that, it's, first of all, it's going to be immutable, so it never changes. And But you also know that that if you can actually create that custom type and populate it with values, uh, then it's probably va- going to be valid. Um, so you can still do that with C-sharp also, but it's just, it's just more work. You have to, you know, a type declaration in F-sharp, for example, is often just a single line of code. Whereas a type declaration in G-sharp, you know, you have to write an entire class with a constructor and members and, and so on. Mm. Uh, so it's not that you can't do it in G-sharp or even in Java if we're looking at the, on the other side of the fence, but it's just more work. Um, but I, so it, there's nothing s- preventing you from doing this in an object-oriented language uh, either. Um, mm. If I may take a little, if I may, may do a little sidestep, one of the, ways that I originally began to think about uh, unit testing many years ago was exactly the problem of, you know, when you're writing example-driven unit tests, you have to come up with, a, you know, with good values. So you're saying, well, I'm, I need to test this method and I need to pass in some sort of object into the method as an argument, which value should I actually put into this object? So people will probably use, you know, foo and bar and bass and so on and, and you know, numbers that they like, like 42 and so on. Um, but if you keep on using the same values all the time, you may not actually being test, uh, be testing your things uh, with proper, uh, with proper um, boundaries because you may actually become blind of, you know, using the same hard-coded values over and over again. Does that make sense so far? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so, um, so many years ago, I actually started trying to solve that problem uh, myself by doing an an, um, an object oriented test data generation system calling uh, called AutoFixture, which is still alive here six years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gave me an experience in C Sharp with just you know expressing tests as a relationship between input and output because what autofixture can also do for me is that it um, it can also generate you know randomized input and then I can use that randomized input and, and I have to you know again establish some sort of con- uh, relationship between the input and output where property based testing is a little bit different is that um, instead of just creating a single randomized value what it actually does it it generates lots of randomized input and then it tries to run your test case with all that randomized input. So FS check by default generates a hundred combinations of whatever data you ask it for. And then it runs your single test function a hundred times with those different values. And if all of the hundred runs succeed, then it considers that property to hold. But if just one of them fails... Then it goes into a new phase. It goes into something called a shrinking phase. So this is very interesting because, you know, it might have accidentally created some huge random value. Like, for example, if, you know, the input is a list of something, it may actually have created a, a list of strings where the list has, you know, 87 elements and, you know, of long strings. Mm. And accidentally then that very long string or that very long list of strings would then have generated an error, uh, a test failure. So instead of just telling you, well, here's this list with 87 elements inside of it, this created a test failure. Now you have to go figure out why that happened. What it actually does is it tries to shrink down the, um, the, the, um, the input that created this falsification. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, it says, "Well, okay. So we know that this this particular input created a failure. Now let's try to see if we can recreate the failure by making the um, the input smaller, if you will, so that it's easier to understand." And it keeps on doing that until the failure goes away. And then it says, "Well, okay. So the last thing that still reproduces the failure, I'm now going to report that to the original programmer and say, well, this actually reproduces the failure. So even though it originally started with some totally garbage random input and that produced a failure, it'll often end up giving you a very good reproduction that says, well, this particular boundary value, that that has a failure inside of it, and now you need to go fix it. So that's, that's pretty nice. 100 permutations of yep. test data, but is it seems like an arbitrary number. Is that oh, totally. a yeah. magic and number? That, or? It, that is just the default um, number of runs that FSCheck does. So you can you know, definitely turn, it down turn or that up, up or down if, you, if yeah. you want to, but that's just the default number that he uses. And I find that quite um, sufficient for most cases anyway. Very cool. Oh, yeah. Hold that thought because, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. It certainly is. It's time to run a property test of my middle-of-show jokes to make sure they make sense from every possible angle within all acceptable parameters of logic and rationality. <laughs> yeah. that, that's some fuzz testing. Fail. <laughs> <laughs> the word was functional. Functional. 
Uh, how about dysfunctional? Can we do that? <laughs> a little dysfunctional testing? I've done that. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to uh, give away a Music to Code by Music and Video collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code by is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. At least that's what the kids are saying. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code by. See what all the fuss is about at mtcb.pwop.com. Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner is Dennis Teixeira. From- oh, congratulations, Dennis. From Franklin, Massachusetts. Nice. Not that far away. Not far at all. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes. And Dennis won the Music to Code by... Uh, collection. And if you don't know what we're doing here, just go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And we like to ask our guests, of course, Mark, if you had $5,000 to spend, gee, wasn't that long ago you gave us a good answer. But uh, what what would you be buying today? Oh, uh, Lego. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, My so, friend for Lego? That's the plural of Lego. <laughs> That's a lot of Lego. Lego. <laughs> I, well, I, I guess you Americans call it Legos, right? Yeah, but you're right. Lego. Just a lot of Lego. It's, it's actually Danish, so I know that it's called Lego. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, so what I would do, actually, they have this thing called Mindstorm that you've probably heard about, where you can oh, actually yeah. build, build, build small robots out of it. And, and I saw, a, um, I saw um, a guy at a conference that actually hacked that. It's a, it's a known thing how you actually hack those things. And he was ra- running uh, Erlang or Elixir on, the, um, on the, um, the robot instead of what it originally comes with. Nice. Uh, so you can do all sorts of interesting things with that. So, so that's what I would like to do. And then I, I probably also buy a lot of Lego Technics if, if that, um, brings a bill for you. But that's basically how you can c- construct, you know, machinery, all sorts of machinery. And, and the reason for that is if you go to, um, if you go to YouTube and find a guy called Akiyuki, um, I think that's a Japanese, uh, person. Um, he's building those great ball contraptions. Uh, so he's basically building those big machines that just moves Lego small small Lego balls around in all sorts of crazy ways. Wow! And it's just very very fascinating to look at. Um, and he also builds them so that they actually look very beautiful. And I I really think that that would be that would really be fascinating to be able to do that. Um, That's great. So you should you should um, you should put aside like half an hour uh, at some point and just look at those things. I've I've been looking at those things with my kids for you know many hours. And they're very interesting to look at. Just moving, you know, small plastic balls around. Fantastic. Um, he actually I thought you were going to go down the path of some of the super collector series, the ultimate collector series of Lego. Like, oh, I think yeah. th- there's a Millennium Falcon kit that's just massive. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the thing yeah, was the, 500 I, bucks retail when it was new. Today, if you have one in the box you've never opened, collectors will pay thousands of dollars right. for it. Right. Well, I, I, f- I find those fascinating to look at, but I think they may they may be fun to build. Maybe they're not even going to be fun to build. I don't know. But then after you build it, what what were you going to do? Then you have this gigantic Lego thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, so you- this, 
Yeah. So this guy actually, he ended up right, uh, building, one of the things he actually built was he took three Mindstorm sets, so three different you know, computers with motors and so on. And he actually built a um, fully articulated uh, robot arm, like an industrial robot that it can, it could actually more, uh, move on all, you know, three axes. Awesome. Wow. That was pretty, that was pretty impressive. Have you seen any of the large scale Lego art? You know, that the kind of stuff you see at, uh, what is it? Universal studios has it or Disney or one of those places where the well, Lego stores, they're just these enormous right. dinosaurs and things. Right. Well, we have Legoland here in Denmark, so um, you know where the original company actually is. Yeah. So, um, so, so we go there. You know, my kids are getting too old for this now, but they we've been there for many um, for many years in a row. Uh, so there are lots of models and everything going on there. Plastic but the, the robotic side of this, I mean, now the Lego is just a medium for exploring this sort of digital interaction. Yeah, you could do that as well. So um, this is not something that I really know a lot about, but I think it would be quite interesting to do. But it's actually pretty expensive as well. So I think I could easily blow 5000 on that. <laughs> well, uh, jumping back in here, I went. I found this document online about the philosophy of uh, property-based testing with FS Check, and it's at tinyurl.com slash fsfizzbuzz because there's oh, yeah. a great – this is a really good example – I can tell, you know, the FizzBuzz test, right? It's a, a, I guess it's a game where uh, right. it's a drinking game. Isn't it? I think it started out as a drinking game or a logic test where there's only, I, and I can't remember what the rules are, but it's like only right. prime numbers. Well, I've, I've, seen it ex- I've seen it explained that as, as just a kid's game where, uh, well, so there's no drinking involved, but basically yeah. you can do it with your kids when they're starting learning, um, you know, basic division, because what you do is you say, well, you just say the numbers one, two, three, and, and so on. But instead of saying three, every time you hit something that's divisible by three, you just say fizz. Right. And then you you have the other rule for when you say bus and fizz bus and so on. So I actually did, did that with my daughter by, back when she learned to do basic um, math, and she thought, she thought that was fun. Oh, I remember uh, now. It's yeah. The name of the drinking game is just called Buzz. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've, I've, never tr- I've never tried it as a drinking game. And I think it's any multiple of seven or 11, you have to say buzz. All right, now that don't worry. It, it's similar, anyway. But uh, what's cool about this is that um, I'm starting to look at the syntax of how FS Check works, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you're not being so hip to F Sharp. I'm not sure what is F Sharp and what is FS Check. You know, like you have these; they look like attributes for facts and properties. Those right. are just yeah. .NET attributes, are they not? Those are just attributes. Yes. Yeah. And then of course yes. we have the ever popular let. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's just a function in this case. Yeah. Um so 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 fscheck for example plugs into your favorite um into your favorite unit testing framework, if your favorite unit testing framework is xunit.net, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they, it also, they all, there's also a glue library for, for NUnit as well, so yeah. I just don't know whether it works because I've never tried it. But, but most people use these two together, don't they? Yeah. Well, the, I, think, I think you're right. Uh, or they just use FSCheck as a standalone uh, library because you can do that as well. So, mm. so FSCheck comes as the standalone library. And then there's a glue library if you want to use it together with xunit.net. And there's another glue library if you want to use it together with nunit. Um, so some people just use FSCheck and just have you know, a console application that just you know, contains all their tests. And if that console application doesn't crash, well, you, then all your tests are actually passing. So that's also a possibility. It's really cool. 
cool, though, how you're just using the English language here, like let a number not be divisible by five and multiplied by three will return fizz. Yes. And that's just an F-sharp feature because you have those double back tick quoted names. That's yeah. just an F-sharp feature that you can do that. But it works very well uh, with um, with testing because you can now write those tests, you know, and, and write actually a nice sentence about what the test is about instead of, you know, using all sorts of crazy, ugly underscores or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I also really like the idea of using a different language for testing than your app. So that, you, you know, you create a clear division between the two. Well, yeah, you can do that. But again, I, I need to point out that you can also do this in C-sharp if you want to do sure. that. So, um, but you, what like I said, the terseness in F-sharp in this scenario, like now you've said something that's very F-sharp-ish about how well I can express this particular mm -hmm. range of tests. Yep. Yes, right. But, but still, I find that, you know, when using F-sharp, it really works well if it's talks to other F-sharp code. Um, so, um, because I, you know, if I have to write F-sharp code that talks to, to C-sharp code or Visual Basic code, um, it's it's definitely possible because F-sharp is designed to be able to do that. But often, in order to make it expressible, uh, as, as expressive as F-sharp usually is, what you often tend to do is you create a very thin translation layer that translates what looks like objects into something that looks like functions because functions are the building blocks of F-sharp. So that's that's what you t uh, typically tend to do then. But you could definitely test your object-oriented code written in C-sharp or in Visual Basic with, with F-sharp if you wanted to do that. That would not be a problem at all. Awesome. Yeah. So so another thing I want to to point out may, mainly for the listeners, if in case anyone is uh, having a still a, a bit of an uncertain feeling about this, is because we talked a lot about randomized input, right. and you probably heard or maybe you read a article by Martin Fowler saying, well, unit tests should be deterministic, um, and this is also something that we believe very strongly in in, in property based testing. So we are not saying that a the test suite that we are writing with property based tests is not deterministic. So the, it sounds almost paradoxical, but basically we're saying, well, we're using randomized input, but the tests we are expressing are still deterministic. Right. Be so deterministic in the sense that if you run the same parameter set again, you get the same result. Exactly. So if you have one test failure in your test suite and you don't touch anything and you run the test suite again, you will still have that single test uh, right. failure. Yeah, so so that's still what we're working with here. So just in case that someone was wondering about whether that's a problem, um, there's no need, need to worry because that's still the goal of, of doing property-based testing, just like uh, any any other uh, testing. And, and you know, if you've ever just wrote, uh, if you've ever written just normal tests in C-sharp, for example, you will also sometimes may have experienced that it's possible to write a test that fails sometimes and passes at other times right um so it's still possible to do that in c sharp and obviously that's also possible to do here because you make some sort of logical error and then you know once in a blue moon your property-based tests will fail um so there's no guarantee that that's not going to happen but that's not you know that's not the goal of it if that ever happens in my property-based tests i still consider that as being a you know a defect in the test and i need to go fix the test so that it's not behaving you know, erratically again. Um, but usually it's not that difficult to make it deterministic. Yeah, and, and well, this has always been the complaint against fuzz testing in the first place, right, is that it's not repeatable. And what right. good is a test that isn't repeatable? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's why I started talk, talking about fast testing because I say, well, the purpose of fast testing is something completely different. Mm. Um, and it's just to be absolutely clear that this fast testing is not what we're doing here. We are doing tests of the behavior of the system. So we are testing the business logic or whatever it is that you care about with property-based testing. And it, it, and it is repeatable. And there is so the that, argument of resiliency, right? I mean, as a, as a guy who's done lots of high performance websites it's like sometimes stuff's going to break and the way that it breaks under load is very hard to repeat right. so how do you allow a system to fail or a feature to fail without the app failing so you know again res resiliency is about recovering from stuff breaking not stuff never breaking right right but that's not um, as far as i see it anyway that's not what we're doing with property based testing but I that totally is agree. what we're it's a completely yeah, different is... kind of testing yeah, that's the other. That's the, what you do fast testing, and that's why you do stress testing and so on. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those things. I'm just saying, well, we're talking about two different things here. Just, just wanted to be clear on that. Yeah, and and not mixing the two up, I think, is really important mm -hmm. as well because it's easy to construe property te based testing as fuzz testing, and it's not. It's a repeatable process for finding functional failures. Yeah, just like all other sorts of unit tests. Just, it seems like an easier way to, once you get around the kind of weirdness of this, it seems like an easier way to get a larger spectrum of validation from your app. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm really, I'm really pretty much begun to write all my, at least all my F-sharp tests are just written in this manner now because sometimes it's, you just have to think about things a little bit differently in order to figure out how can you approach this problem with property-based testing. But once you figure that out, it often turns out that to actually be a more expressive way of doing it. Um, so I had a, um, I had a, a sort of an interesting experience when I started out with this. There's a small coding Carter, um, you know, a small coding exercise. Uh, it's called the Diamond Carter. And um, you can search for it if you want to see what it does. But basically... Um, it turns out that this carta is very, very difficult to do in the traditional test-driven development sense where you use, you know, example input and say, well, if the input is A, then I expect the output to be this. And if the input is B, the, I expect the output to be that. And the, and I think the carta is actually, it, it almost, it feels like it's almost designed to, um, to, to be a problem in the traditional way of, of approaching test-driven development because uh, what happens is that you try to do it with test-driven development and you start with a couple of examples and you can just uh, basically just hard-code the return values for those examples. But then as you move along and start throwing more examples at it in the traditional CDD fashion, then the entire all the requirements of the problem has to be solved at once. So it's a very difficult problem to approach in an incremental fashion. Hmm. Um, but then it turned out that if you try to approach that problem with property-based tests, there is no way that you can, um, you have to figure out how to decompose the problem into smaller um, descriptions of what the problem actually is. And that is usually the, the problem altogether, isn't it? I yep. mean, I'm looking at this FizzBuzz example and, you know, you have, what, four less restrictive tests that you have to come up with and then three more restrictive tests and how do you how do you figure out what that baseline number of tests is? I mean, the, the permutations of data are going to happen no matter what. But figuring out what the deconstructed the values that uh, you need to yeah. test against is the problem, isn't it? 
Well, you still have to think. I mean, there's no um, no shortcut for that. Sure. There's no silver bullet. Um, but it's just that it. I think what's interesting with property-based testing is that one thing is that it frees you from actually coming up with a lot of values yourself. But on the other hand, it puts a, I wouldn't say a burden, but it forces you to think through the problem in terms of how can you actually express the, you know, the sub components of what this uh, system is going to do. Yep. Uh, how can you actually express that in small, in small, um, decoupled uh, attributes or traits or values or features. So, the, so we come back to this overloaded term property. You know, what's a property? It's uh, yeah, yep. it's all of those things. And and I, and and that's the unfortunate thing about you know the word property is already taken. The word attribute is already taken. You know, the word yeah. you know everything is already taken. <laughs> but basically, Just start making them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you should just call it Fubuldu or something like that. Right. Fubuldu. Naming Fubuldu. is hard. It is. <laughs> it is. Period. It is creating spaces in the brain to categorize and put stuff. You know, how do you do that when it's named Fubuldu or whatever? Yeah, yeah. some other some guid. <laughs> <laughs> just not good at retaining guids. I don't know why. <laughs> so, oh. do you recommend for C sharp developers that you use? Uh, FS check with C sharp, or is FS check only an F sharp thing? I think um, you mentioned I think, this before. Well, I I would definitely say if you're if you want to already do some F sharp, then I think FS check is is a completely natural thing to do. If you do C sharp, I think it's worth considering. But you also have to realize that there is FS check makes some assumptions on the code that you want to test for example. So if you want if you say let's say you um, you create an address class. Um, and you want to to create, you know, a hundred different values of that class with FSCheck. Now, FSCheck is going to be happy to do that if you have an an immutable class. So you say, well, okay, so the address has some values. It has, you know, a zip code and a state or whatever, and, and you know, a, a road, a street. Um, and if those values are strings and those are being passed into the constructor of the class when the object is created, and mm -hmm. and then you can FSCheck can tell that that class is immutable from there on it's going to be happy to create those those values for you um, but if you have one of those very normal what you, what you see a lot of in in um, in .NET or in C Sharp, if you have one of those classes that has a default constructor that doesn't take any parameters mm -hmm. and then you have to assign all the values using a you know a property setter so that's the other type of property right mm -hmm. um, if you have that sort of code then FSJ is just going to say well I don't know how to create that um, okay. So you'll have to tell it. So again, it's not that you can't do that, but it's just you have to realize that if your code looks like that, you'll have to hold hand. You hold, have to hold FSJ's hands and tell it how to create those values because it's it will not do that by by itself. I see. It has it has it's opinionated because it wants things to be functional. Um, so if if it doesn't look like it's functional uh, to that framework, then it's just says, well, I give up. Oh, but Please you said me. there was an alternate alternative tool for C sharp developers, though, right? Well, yeah. So, so, well, and to you know, full disclosure, this is something that I created myself long before I discovered property based testing. Uh, but just because I sort of had that problem of how do you actually come up with um, with test values, and I've used that with uh, C sharp for like five or six years. Uh, it's called Auto Fixture. Um, but it's a little bit different because it doesn't it doesn't you know create a hundred values and run your test a hundred times, yeah. but it just comes up with some 
you know good approximations of saying well i guess that if you if you have a string in your class it's it's going to give you a string that's not null and so on so you can yeah. try to work with that and so on so um this is very customizable as well so that's also an option um definitely okay. but it's not really property based testing it's it's some sort of thing that was born out of necessity um and not inspired by so much other stuff but that's a different story then. so maybe we should be writing uh <laughs> Maybe we should be writing code with um, constructors that take parameters and doing things that way and then using FS check. Oh, that would be a good idea anyway. Because yeah, that would be a good idea. Because what happens when you do that is that you're beginning to actually take the concept of encapsulation seriously. So mm -hmm. encapsulation is a very object-oriented thing, right? Um, and basically what it says is that, well, if... If, a, if an object requires, you know, if you have an address object, you probably say, well, the address object does require a zip code and it does require a street and a number and so on. If that's your rules in the domain that you're working with, you might as well just say that in your static type system and say, well, you'll have to pass those in through the constructor so that you know that when the object is initialized, it's valid. Mm-hmm. And so that's in my book very a very object oriented thing to do. Yeah. But lots of people actually don't do that, and I think more people should do that. Um, and, and so that doesn't really have to be particularly functional. It's just encapsulation. And also, if you're doing dependency injection, you're already writing like that. So yeah, right. but it doesn't have to be you know polymorphic things like interfaces you pass in through constructors. You can pass right. in you know, primitive values as well. Sure. It's just a question of initializing the object so that it's when it's initialized. It's also valid, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's I also wonder if this isn't a great way to learn F sharp. I remember us having a conversation about you writing tests in Ruby as a way to sort of get yourself into Ruby and just enjoying the dynamic nature of it. I mean, this is not what F sharp's about, but like you said, that the library is really pushing us down this functional path. Yes. That's true. Well, I don't. I, I mean, I think it's quite enjoyable to um, to write property based tests. Actually, so um, so I would certainly recommend that people do that also if they want to learn it. But I'm 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 not sure that it's everyone's cup of tea. I don't know. So, uh, but definitely, if you, if you think it sounds like fun, then yeah, go ahead and give it a try. That would be um, that would be a great thing to do. Yeah, really interesting ideas, and just a different way of thinking about testing as a whole too. Right, but but then again, I just I'll just need to point out though in, in F sharp and other you know um, and other languages like it, uh, you have this thing called a REPL, a redeval print loop. Uh, in F sharp, right. it's called F, F sharp interactive or FSI, and that just gives you a little environment where you can just write code basically on something that looks like a command line, and you can just yep. have that code executed there. So that's also a great environment if you just want to experiment and see you know what does this function actually do? You know this built-in function that comes from the library. What you know what happens if I pass these arguments in so you can just do some ad hoc ad hoc experimentation there uh, so that's also a good um, that's also a good environment to do that in because you know typically what I've also used unit testing for in G sharp is that you know I ha already have a test um, projects open perhaps and that just gives me a way to experiment with various things in C sharp because well then I can just run my test and figure out what's actually going to happen uh, because C sharp does not have that ripple. Um, but for ad hoc experimentation, you know, if you have a ripple, that's that's easier. Mark, uh, any resources that uh, you want to mention here? Did you do a Pluralsight course on this? 
for example? Oh yeah, that, thanks for uh, thanks for asking. Yes, I actually did an introduction to F sharp um, or an introduction to property based testing with F sharp pull side calls. Uh, I'll also be doing a um, a one day workshop at uh, NDC in London uh, here in January. So yes. um, obviously, this is something that will cost you money if you want to attend. But um, that should give you an, an entire day with um, with F uh, with F check and F sharp and and me. <laughs> Great. So. Um, so I hope to see lots of people there. That would be that would be very nice. Well, you see us there. We'll be oh, there. Good, yeah. good, good. I'm looking forward we'll to be it. in the fishbowl. All right, we'll Mark. have some food then. Yes, we definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baked potatoes and uh, cereal. I think, <laughs> I, I think I've heard something about it's possible to get good food in London. Really? We'll yeah, see. you just we'll got to know where that's... to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, jolly good. We'll see you then. And until next time, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.